I'm Beth Bartell. And I'm Jim Pull, and this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Coming. Today is Tuesday, March 11th, 2014. Coming up, I got a little excited there, why Einstein still matters. And plants in space, how gardening can help astronauts live happier and healthier space lives. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Next time you hear an upbeat summary tune, know that very same melody could be conjuring up a specific scene for blind people. Not of a beach, but of, for example, an armchair. Scientists have developed a technology to turn the details of an image into its musical equivalent, a note for a point, a chord for an edge, so to speak. Although the noise of an image might sound like a cacophony to the untrained ear, users can quickly learn to hear everyday scenes. Blind people even manage to navigate their way round a room by listening to the sound signature of nearby furniture as they move. But the research wasn't just a breakthrough for the blind. The scientists found that when blind people trained on the technology, their visual cortex lit up. A big surprise. Theory was that this area shouldn't be developed without visual experiences during childhood. Time for a new brain model. The latest version of the technology, called iMusic, is available as a free iPhone app. The study was published on Thursday in Current Biology. Sunlight on John Denver's shoulders may have made him happy, but sunlight on asteroid P2013R3 may have made it gently explode. As sunlight surfaces of the spinning space rock rotated away from the sun, redder than red light leaked away into cold space. Every departing photon gave the rock a tiny push by Newton's third law. Researchers think the little pushes added up until P2013R3 spun so fast it flew apart. It's called the Yarkovsky O'Keefe Radzvieski Paddock Effect, or more simply put, YORP. Ground telescopes first saw the asteroid as a fuzzy blob last September. Hubble then described 10 fragments, leaving at a stroll. Scientists trying to figure out what happened in between say ice held the rock together, but that P2013R3 was too far from the sun to be unglued by melting. A hard strike would have caused the pieces to rocket off rather than saunter away. Thus, astronomers hypothesize that P2013R3 has been yorped. The study was published March 6th in Astrophysical Journal Letters. Okay, Radio Land, time for your morning science visualization. Put your hand on your belly. Now imagine a whole ecosystem in there. Thousands of species of bacteria are thriving in there, and hopefully they're the good kind, the ones that keep us healthy and happy. Now put Darwin somewhere in the picture and imagine the critters changing over time. That's right. Evolution in your belly. Researchers studying the guts of mice are learning that bacteria, such as E. coli, evolve surprisingly quickly into strains more suited for the intestinal environment. For example, mutating into beasties more suited to an anaerobic environment, low in oxygen. The researchers say understanding evolution in the gut is important because it will help us to develop new strategies for fighting diseases by manipulating these gut microbes. 
You can find the details of this research in Plus Gen- excuse me, Plus Genetics. And for those of you looking for something sciencey to do, tonight at the Café Scientifique in Boulder, the former director of the National Renewable Energy Lab, or NREL, is going to talk about whether cheap oil and gas from fracking is going to inhibit adoption of renewable energy technologies in the U.S. You can hear that talk at Boulder Outlook Hotel tonight at 530. I am what I am, Layla. And if there are self-made purgatories, then we all have to live in them. Mine could be no worse than someone else's. I have lost you, haven't I? And not only you. I've lost all of it. Spores. I've lost them too. The captain discovered that strong emotions and needs destroy the spore influence. This is for my good? Oh, the spores. That was Spock on Omicron Seti 3, when spores from a planet caused him to fall in love. Introducing our first feature on plants in space. You're listening to How on Earth, the KG News Science Show. I'm Beth Bartell. What would you miss if you were to spend an extended time in space? Driving a car, going to the movies, hiking, playing with your dog? Gravity, maybe? Or maybe something as simple as eating good, nutritious vegetables? I spoke with University of Colorado undergraduate researcher Lizzie Lombardi yesterday about harvesting healthier veggies for our astronauts. So in, in planning for a space diet, I think freeze-dried ice cream. Um, and you think green leafy vegetables. Why is that? Well, I do think freeze-dried ice cream. I also think packaged vegetables. I think of the things that are currently used for space food. However, it's not a new thing to be growing fresh things on board. Certainly the International Space Station. Um, and astronauts are human beings no matter where they are in the universe so they still need vegetables and they still get comfort actually from eating those fresh foods you're looking at um or you did for the study look at one nutrient in particular which i'm not actually going to try to pronounce but i'm going (laughs) to let you pronounce it um and tell us about it and also tell us how it's helpful to both plants and people sure so i studied zeaxanthin with uh, Dr. Barbara Deming Adams, Dr. William Adams, and Dr. Christopher Kohu in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. And uh, so zeaxanthin is a xanthophyll, and it is produced by plants when they're under um, harsh light conditions. It's a defense mechanism, essentially. What's important about zeaxanthin? For plants, it's protective, and actually it's also protective for humans and our eyeballs because our eyes are highly sensitive to radiation as well. And so we have deposition of zeaxanthin in the back of our eyes, and we have to we can't make it ourselves, so we do have to consume it through our diets. And astronauts, of course, are exposed to high radiation levels, and so having extra zeaxanthin in their diet would potentially be really helpful in um, avoiding cataracts. It sounds like NASA has been working to grow food as fast as possible, which is something that we do here on Earth as well. But it also sounds like fast is maybe not good enough? Well, fast, you have to think about what is fast to plant growth. And fast is essentially creation of biomass. 
And biomass is, you know, great, but that means photosynthesis has to be humming at high efficiency. And when photosynthesis is humming at high efficiency, you're utilizing light um, rather than defending yourself against it as much, which means that your levels of zeaxanthin are not going to be high at all, really. So we end up with this system like we have now in this um, industrial system. We have plants that grow really fast and have a lot of biomass but are not especially nutrient dense because they haven't they've been bred to just grow rather than protect describe to me the experiment what would what would we see if we walked into your lab or greenhouse yeah sure so the Deming Adams and Adams lab is on the very tippy top floor of Romali on campus so it's like you have to go up all these stairs and you walk into this hallway and it's just dark because all of the lights have to be off uh, so that when you open the growth chambers, you're not exposing them to light, uncontrolled light source. So along the hallways, or along the hallway, you have all of these different growth chambers that are humming along. There are these giant, um, they kind of look like refrigerators without shelving in, in them, I suppose. But you can control the light and when the light comes on, when the light goes off, the intensity of the light. And you can also control um, gas exchange and uh, temperature and all of that, humidity, so you can completely control the abiotic climate. Wow. And so these are seriously environmentally well controlled chambers. Yes, definitely. It's like a very small greenhouse with more control. Did you apply light as though they were growing in a normal daylight cycle? So we applied moderate to low light for most of the growth day period, and then um, five times a day, we had it on a timer that it would amp up to moderately high light. So it was about four times as high as the regular light light period. And it would that those pulses, if you will, of light would span for five minutes at a time, more or less. And you found that these brief pulses, these five minute pulses yeah. of light were enough to increase the levels of xanthanin? Zeaxanthin. Z- yeah. oh, sort of close. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you got it. Um, yeah, so not only did we find that those those five pulses, which is not a super complicated treatment for these plants, we found that not only did it increase zeaxanthin levels, it also uh, re- encouraged the plant to retain them over time. So eventually the plant kind of stopped converting back to this other molecule, violexanthin, and started keeping a little bit more of its zeaxanthin, which has great implications for use in human nutrition because that means it's storing it for us. Also, kind of the kicker was that not only did we get this zeaxanthin increase and retention, but we also saw that we didn't um, get in the way of sugar production, so we didn't impede photosynthesis and saw no decrease in biomass or above ground biomass of our plants. So as an astronaut then I could eat this plant, get and process the zeaxanthin. Thank you. Zeaxanthin. <laughs> and um and that would hypothetically help my eyesight and help to counter some of that the effect of the radiation coming yes. in. Yes. What implications does this have for those of us who plan to stay on Earth? Well, it actually has a lot of implications for terrestrial use, I think. Um, It's fascinating to think about taking them into space, but also we grow plants in small conditions and greenhouses. Um, Urban gardeners who have small greenhouses often have control 
over their lighting system, so you could increase the exanthin levels if you have control over your lighting system. Also, what we've done here is shown that plants have learned traits that they're expressing according to abiotic and biotic conditions. And this could be a very fruitful area for future research into how we can convince and prod plants to do things that we want them to do. Like, you know, we want you to be big, but we also want you to be more nutritious. And one of the other ways that a lot of scientists are um, looking into doing that right now is genetic modification, but we could also uh, look more at environmental conditions and how we could change environmental conditions to encourage particular phenotypes. So we could potentially affect our food sources with environmental factors rather than getting in and changing their genetic makeup. Or in or in addition to, yeah. So if I wanted to take care of my eyes, would I be better off eating a carrot or eating some leafy greens that have been exposed to pulses of light? Both. So there you have it. You can keep eating carrots for eye health, but mixing in some leafy greens exposed to bursts of intense light might be good for you too. And they may help keep our astronauts seeing strong. Thanks to CU researcher Lizzie Lombardi for speaking with us about space gardening. And that is the theme from the 1979 movie Black Hole, where a spaceship and a bunch of people get sucked into a black hole. And uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Do black holes suck with local astrophysicist uh, Jeffrey Bennett? Jeffrey is the winner of the 2013 America American Institute of Physics, Science, Communications Award. He got a Ph.D. in astrophysics and an M.S. at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And he is the new author of a book, and he's written a lot of books for children and other great books. But this new book is called What is Relativity? An Intuitive Introduction to Einstein's Ideas and Why They Matter. Thanks for coming to How on Earth, Jeff. Really glad to have you here today. Thank you very much for having me here. Okay, well, so we played the black hole, but, you know, why, why don't black holes suck? Well, black holes don't suck because um, gravity is gravity, and the gravity of a black hole is, at a distance, no different from the gravity of any other object. So you might want to go around and round and round a black hole, but to get sucked into one, you've got to aim for it. You've got to aim for it. In fact, uh, because black holes are very, very small compared to, say, a planet or a star in terms of their um, diameters, as you might call it, or their circumference, they're probably about the most difficult thing in the universe to fall into by accident. Well, don't black holes have something to do with quarks and stuff? Uh, why, why, why do black holes have to do with relativity? What is relativity, anyway? <laughs> Good question. I'm relative, you're relative. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about relativity, one of them being that somehow the theory of relativity says that everything is relative. It does not. The theory of relativity is actually a theory that gets its name from the relativity of motion, but what it really is is it is our modern scientific understanding of space, time, and gravity. And if you think about those three things, you realize that means it is essentially our modern understanding of the universe. It is at the foundation of all modern physics and astronomy. 
So it is indeed a very, very important uh, theory. It's 2015 is going to be the 100th anniversary of general relativity, and it was early, what, 2000, I'm sorry, let's try that again. 2015 is going to be the 100th anniversary, but it was earlier than 1915 that Einstein published special relativity, right? Right. He, he published special relativity in 1905 and general relativity in 1915. And of course, I should mention, everyone always wants to know what's so special about special relativity. And the answer is the word special in there is from the fact that it applies to the special case where he's considering space and time without gravity. Adding in the effects of gravity was more complicated. It took him an extra 10 years to work that out. And then he had the happiest thought of his life. He had the happiest thought of his life along the way. It's actually an interesting story. He had that thought in 1907, so a couple, only a couple of years after uh, he'd published Special Relativity, and that happiest thought had to do with how he could integrate gravity into the theory, and it's something we call the equivalence principle, in which he realized that the effects of gravity and the effects of acceleration are the same for a reason, not by coincidence, as scientists before him had thought. And, but then he had to learn a lot of mathematics in order to work out the details of that, and that's what took him another eight years to get to the final general theory of relativity. Yeah. You know, I've never actually taken a course in general relativity, so I've been spared. I mean, we do have some complex mathematics in psycho uh, yeah, psychology and, and uh, seismology, which is my area of expertise. But, you know, uh, Einstein didn't consider himself much of a mathematician, did he? He did not consider himself much of a mathematician. And in a way, that's why it's possible for almost anyone to understand this theory, because you don't need the mathematics to understand the concepts. That's why my approach is what we call the intuitive approach on the subtitle. Um, the mathematics is what you need if you want to actually calculate and make predictions and test the theory. But the understanding just requires an open mind and really thinking about the nature of reality. Right. Well, you know, you make an important point in the book uh, about testing. Science isn't about confirmation. Science is about refutation. That's what Karl Popper stressed so strenuously in, in his ideas. And I certainly have been adhering about, of that. Tell, tell us about that. Tell our, tell our audience, you know, what distinguishes science from the rest of the ways that we might understand the world around us. Well, I think that's correct. What really distinguishes science is that we have to be able to put the ideas to the test. Something doesn't become a scientific theory, uh, and a, by theory we mean well-established, until it has been tested and tested and tested and passed all those tests. If it fails some of the tests, then that tells us that there's something else we need to look at. And the classic example here is Newton's theory of gravity, which worked fine for the first couple of centuries after Newton published it, but by the late 1800s, people had turned up at least one thing, the orbit of Mercury, that wasn't perfectly matching Newton's theory. Just a little bit off now, folks. Just a tiny little bit. Off by so little that it's almost hard to believe they could measure it at that time, but they could. And Einstein said, well, what if it's a, there's something a little different going on here? So he came up with his theory of general relativity, and general relativity gives the correct answer for what Mercury is doing. Newton's is off ever so slightly, and that tells us that Einstein's theory is an improvement upon Newton's. It doesn't make Newton's wrong. It works fine for most cases, but there are a few cases where you need to go deeper into the reality of nature. 
Now, now when quantum mechanicists and general relativists grapple, they might one or the other group might want to claim that theirs is the best tested uh, theory of reality. These aren't competing theories by and large. They're complementary, but how well tested is general relativity and special relativity? They are extremely well tested. Um, General relativity, for example, predicts time differences for objects at different heights in a gravitational field, and that has been tested right over at uh, NIST uh, down the street to one meter of difference in height, finding a difference in time. And the same for special relativity to speeds of walking speeds, they can measure a difference. So it's very, very well tested. The interesting thing from what you just mentioned was that quantum mechanics is our theory in a sense of the very, very small, and general relativity is our theory of the very, very large. Both have been extremely well tested, but there is one place, which is what we call the singularity of a black hole, where they disagree. And that means we haven't finished physics yet. We still need to find a way to tie these two theories that both work really well together in the places where they disagree. Well, come on. Let's take a trip to a black hole and find out. Uh, you go first, and I'll see how you do. And uh, when you get across the event horizon, I'll, I'll follow. What's, what's up? Well, you're lucky if you got the second draw on that one because, um, you know, no, when no, I, when no, I, I dive into the black hole, it's all going to be over real quick because that gravity, if I'm falling straight into it, is going to make me accelerate much, much faster than I would accelerate on Earth's weak gravity. So I'll be in there pretty fast. From your point of view in your spacecraft orbiting, as you watch me go down, at first you'll see me falling pretty quickly. But as I approach the black hole, you will notice my time slowing down. And in fact, from your point of view, I will never cross into the black hole. Hole, which means you don't have to jump out since you were waiting for me to finish. Well, that's good. I, and it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't uh, just by chance. I, I read your book, and that's how I know to send you first. Uh, <laughs> the uh, so how are we going to you know resolve this maybe this discrepancy between quantum mechanics and and general relativity? Given that observation is the ultimate arbiter, and we can't observe this. Well, of course. We do need to find a way to observe it. There are lots of ideas about uh, how it might work, and they lead to all sorts of interesting things. If those of the, your uh, listeners who are watching the Cosmos series, which I highly recommend, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson's already been talking about the multiverse and so on. But it's a speculative idea, and the problem is right now we can't test it. So people wonder, what do theoretical physicists do all day? They try to find ways that we can actually test out some of these ideas. Well, this has been a lot of fun. A lot, it's a very interesting book. I'm a physicist myself. Like I've taken this course in special relativity, but I learned my first lessons about general relativity out of this book, folks. And it's actually not a very – it's a very easygoing kind of gentle book on you. What is relativity? An intuitive introduction to Einstein's ideas and why they matter with local astrophysicist Jeff Bennett. He's going to be speaking at the Boulder Bookstore this Thursday at 7.30 p.m. We've, we're so lucky to have you in the studio. Thanks for coming, Jeff. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer this quarter is Jim Pullen. This week's show was also engineered by Jim Pullen and produced by yours truly. Additional contributions by Jane Palmer. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music, well, from Star Trek, the original series. And that was the black hole theme from the 1979 movie. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Beth Bartell.